Papa Was a Preacher by Eileen Porter, read by Amy Zook on Anchor from Grandma's Bookshelf. Ways of Pleasantness When the older boys were young and Papa's pastorates were in West Texas, their outlook upon life was tinged with the Wild West atmosphere which pervaded the towns. The small towns were secondary to the large ranches that surrounded them. Professional bronc-busters ambled up and down the streets, cowboys lolled in front of the drugstore, ranch owners strolled importantly through the town square, smoking long cigars. Ten-gallon hats, spurs, and high-heeled boots were regulation garb for the masculine contingent. Farmers brought their bucking horses to town, and the bronco-busters broke them right in, right in the middle of the town square. The horses would rear and cavort while the busters hung on for dear life, shouting epithets in the ears of the beast, and finally subduing them, all of which would appeal to that capacity for high adventure and hero worship in the soul of every boy. It made its due impression on the four of the parsonage. In one town, they could sit in their own hayloft and get a bird's-eye view of the goings-on. They noted the swagger of the busters, and they studied their techniques of riding, and they memorized their lingo. Then they practiced it in the cow lot. One Saturday afternoon, when the town square was thick with human beings milling about, the boys decided to carry their bronco-busting to its rightful place, the town square. Only Molly, the cow which gave our milk, and her calf, Daisy, were available for busting. Pushing Molly into the narrow hallway of the barn, with much effort the boys succeeded in tying a saddle on her. The calf was to be ridden bareback. Hugh mounted Molly and Cecil mounted the reluctant Daisy, while Ed and Raybon gave a literal interpretation of the term cow-punching. Round and round the lot they went, punching the two cows mercilessly until bovine irritation was at a high peak. When Molly began to bellow and try to buck the saddle off and Daisy was snorting and pitching, the gate was open and the rodeo troupe charged through. They rounded the corner, the boys whooping and yelling, the cows pawing and bellowing. The Saturday crowd began to scatter as the two wild cows with boys astride came forging through the streets. Proudly exhibiting his newly acquired lingo, Cecil yelled into Daisy's ear, Get around here, you pie-eyed, loquid son of a lop-eared rabbit! Papa was standing on a street corner in conversation. Shh, he expostulated as the startled scene whizzed by and took out after them in a long run, his coattail flapping in the wind. Stop, boys, stop, he shouted, sprinting his way around the square. Enjoying the excitement, the crowd took sides, some betting on the preacher, some on the kids. Papa's long legs enabled him finally to overtake them. He got Molly by the horn and Hugh by the ear and told the others to follow. They did, slowly and meekly. It was a subdued rodeo which completed the square and meekly rounded the same corner and entered the same gate through which it had burst upon an unsuspecting world with such fanfare only a few minutes before. Although cards and dominoes were banished from the compass of our experience, they were not mourned. Trying to find an hour for a game of cards and overcrowded schedule of our days would have been fruitless. With school, church meetings, house guests, work, and outdoor play, days were filled to overflowing. The boys had bicycles, which they had bought with their own earnings. I could ride them when Papa wasn't looking, but only sideways through the bars. My short legs would not reach the pedals, sitting astride a high bar on a boy's bicycle. I begged for one of my own. The bank account was never over full, however, for buying such a treasure. And besides, Papa considered it tomboyish. I wouldn't ask for a bicycle any more, I told him, if you'd let me have a dog and some skates. The dog was granted, and before long I was cuddling to my heart a fluffy white spritz puppy. The skates were longer materializing. Papa had misgivings about them. Skating rinks were frowned upon by church members, and while my skates would only be used on the sidewalk, still few children of the church members owned them. Mother brought pressure to bear, however, and on my ninth birthday I gleefully hugged in one arm a pair of shining skates and in the other my dog Donnie. 
As I sailed up and down the walk and around the church hour after hour, joy was unconfined, until the day Papa's misgivings took human form. A steward on the official board who had dyspepsia in body and gout in imagination turned into our yard. My chum and I were sitting on the front steps, noisily clanking our skates in preparation for the afternoon's fun when he approached. With a disapproving glance, he said, Could I see your papa? It's a matter of personal business. I dropped my skates to the step. Come in and sit down, please, I said, trying to be polite, although I knew the personal business could not be pleasant. I'll find papa. To my regret, papa was home, and I left brother Jones in his care when I rejoined Faye. Still sitting on the steps, tugging at straps to make the skates secure, we heard voices coming through the open window. Brother Porter was not long driving home his point. Brother Porter, he whined, you know we're told in the Holy Bible to shun the very appearance of evil. Yes, we are, agreed Papa. Now, it doesn't say shun evil. It says shun the very appearance of evil, he went on emphatically. That's right, said Papa. Skating rinks, we know, are dens of iniquity. He self-consciously cleared his throat. <clears throat> Do you think it's very fitting for the preacher's daughter to be forever on skates? We bristled. Why, the old cross-eyed son of a toad frog, said Faye. Shh, listen, I hushed her, for Papa was answering, and on his words hung all my future joy. You're absolutely right, Brother Jones, Papa said, and Hope gave a dying gasp in the heart of me. I wish he had warts on all his fingers and all his toes, I said, tears welling up in my eyes and a lump forming in my throat. Faye and I were ready to open the floodgates and drown ourselves in a pool of tears when Papa's voice continued. And we do try to shun the appearance of evil. However, our little girl is frail, and the doctor has told us to use every means to see that she gets plenty of fresh air and exercise. Hooray for Papa! He was not giving in! He was telling the truth, to be sure! But wasn't he brilliant, thought we, to remember the truth at the right time? We hugged each other and wanted to hear no more. With one long stroke, our skate wheels started rolling, and we were off. Hi-ho for uncensored play! Being afflicted with poor health himself, Brother Jones evidently fell afterwards in the preacher's frail daughter, a kindred spirit. He took me under his wing. How are you feeling, honey? He asked every time we met. And since he was a druggist, he took it upon himself to inform Papa of every builder-upper on the market, and bless him, even donated to the cause. Yeast, iron tablets, tonics, the whole of which, had I consumed, would have made me by this time a ghost or an Amazon. Papa loved fun and sociability, and he provided for it constantly. Usually it was the active type. We were forever staging outdoor plays with all of the children of the community taking part, and with Papa and Mother stepping in whenever we were in need of adult counsel. Once when we had worked especially hard on a benefit show, admission two cents, proceeds to go to the baby's milk fund, Pop and the Sunday school superintendent borrowed somewhere an army tent and erected it for the use on the vacant lot next to the church. With such equipment, we gave an inspired performance, so inspired that it had to be repeated twice. And we were able to contribute more of the milk of human kindness to underprivileged babies than we had dreamed. No home of ours was long without a tennis court and a croquet ground. These became gathering places for the young people of the community. Papa made no distinction between Judy O'Grad and the colonel's lady. It sometimes handicapped our fun to be as democratic as he expected us to be. We had our preferences and playmates, but he would say, A preacher's child must show no partiality, and we are supposed to act upon that law. 
Once you and Cecil were criticized for not inviting two certain girls in town to play tennis. They were related to important church families, and when Papa heard the critical rumor, he called the boys on the mat. Unless you can have the Smith girls over and play with them, you'll just have to quit playing on the tennis court, was his ultimatum. Cecil and Hugh promised to ask them the very next day, and they kept the letter of the law, if not its spirit. The next morning, Cecil rode over to the Smith's house on his bicycle. Lucy, could you and Jenny play tennis with Hugh and me today? He cordially invited. Without consulting Jenny, she responded, Would like to. What time? Oh, say two o'clock, said Cecil, as if it were impromptu and had not been settled long ago in conspiracy with Hugh. We'll be there, said Lucy happily. Two o'clock on an August afternoon in Texas, when the heat is so dreadful that no native has the desire to do anything but take off his flesh and sit in his bones. Promptly at the appointed hour, Lucy and Jenny Smith arrived, smiling and fresh-looking in crisp, dotted Swiss dresses. As they had never played tennis before, Hugh patiently explained the procedure and all the rules. When they felt they were ready, the game began. Fast and furious, the boys played, racing the girls from the back of the court to the net, and back again. When the first game was over, they asked, Do you like tennis? Oh, yes, the girls forced an enthusiastic reply. Then let's keep on playing, Cecil urged, and back to their places on the court they went for another game of dodging tennis balls and heat waves. Without stopping to rest, they played another, and another, and another. At the end of the sixth game, Jenny, drenched in perspiration, her hair-like string, her face the color of beet juice, edged up to Lucy, who presented an identical picture, and the boys heard what they had so vigorously been working and hoping for. Listen as she exhaustedly murmured to Lucy, oh, We'd better go home. Oh, must you? Hugh regretfully asked. Both boys thanked them for coming and gallantly escorted them home. Subsequent invitations were given, but from that day the Smith girls showed no spark of interest in tennis, at least not on the parsonage court. Just as the older boys once gave urge to their play in impromptu rodeo, so Candler drafted our cow in a little private performance. History repeats itself in the parsonage as everywhere else. On one of those hot, lazy days of a Texas summer, Mother was entertaining the Missionary Society. As usual, it was our responsibility to regale the children of the members. Candler was a would-be toughie of ten, and as he and I sat on the porch steps in company with the progeny of the ladies, twiddling our thumbs and trying to think up a game, his eye lighted on Maud, our milk provider, staked out in the vacant lot. Keeping his eye on her with a meaningful air, he rose to his full height, gave a dust-scattering lick to the seat of his pants, and said, Come on, kids, follow me. While the prayer for the heathen Chinese was being voiced in the house, the little troop outside fell into step with their dictator and followed him to the vacant lot. Maud, oblivious to her pending role in the show, continued to chew her cud and bask in cowley complacency. Now stand back, you kids, Red commanded, and they crawfished to a respectful distance. Getting a running start, Red shattered Maud's tranquility by running up to her, landing astride her back with a terrific thud. Then as a juvenile grandstand cheered, he dug his heels into her side, slapped her back, and yelled, Yippee! Mad as a hornet, at such unjust handling, Maud gave a snort suggestive of a Mexican bull and headed towards the cow lot and safety. After a few leaps, she suddenly came to the end of her rope with a violent halt. Before the bulging eyes of the spectator, Red bolted through the air over her head and plunged to the ground. The ladies in the house were by this time surging through the door. He's killed, they screamed. Poor child, oh poor child, he's killed. They crowded around, fanning him, slapping his wrists, feeling for broken bones. 
Red lay inert for a few moments, luxuriating in the lamentation. Then he hopped his feet. With a low bow and his best grandstand voice, he said, Hi, thank you, ladies. Hi, thank you. And Maud, welcoming her restored serenity, resumed her chewing at the place where she had left off a few unhappy moments before.